Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. So glad that you're here this morning. I want to say good morning to our community in the north and Port Perry. I want to w- welcome all of you watching and listening online, no matter who you are or where you've come from. We want to welcome you to our brand new series called Take Heart. And if you've got a Bible this morning, again, physically, virtually, would you turn to the book of Hebrews? That's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. What a year it's been for us as C4. It's been an amazing, exciting ministry year, but what is coming next for us as a church actually has never yet been seen, experienced. We're going now to another new place as a church family uh, by the privilege of God. Another wave of the Holy Spirit is now upon us. We're about in the next few years to move to multiple locations locally, expanding our influence globally through our partnerships. And as we're going to take a few moments, a few weeks to sit in the deep breath before the great plunge as we move forward. We need to take a a, a moment to celebrate all that God has done over the last year among us. I was reflecting this week on the 25 more baptisms that happened last week. Were you here? Just like an unbelievable, you can clap it, that's beautiful. The first baptisms in the north and we just are so celebrating lives changed. As Chris was saying down here, Mark saying in the north, our largest Easter in history. Now the capital campaign, missions trips, the actual launch of C4 uh, in in the north, conversions. We've now had some documented physical healings in the name of Jesus, uh, deliverances and salvations. And what is so amazing is also so many people are connecting now into connect groups. And as Lori always says to us, people now know where hundreds and hundreds of other people are uh, spiritually in their walk and also are there when something difficult is taking place place. Yet in the middle of this ongoing experience, more people coming to Christ, our church growing, there are also multiple stories in the middle of God's great move of personal pain, faith wondering, and struggle. And then, of course, we together as one church, we're looking to what is about to come, and we all together, whether in great pleasure or pain, celebrating or wondering, we together need to end this ministry year with inspiration. We must continue to have our expectations formed for us personally as followers of Jesus, and we corporately as a church, so as we continue to step out, we will know that we know that we know that God will continue to be with us and he will sustain us as we step out in faith. We must also know that we're actually keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, not walking behind him and not walking in front of him. And if there is one passage which is most relevant, if there's one passage over the next month or two that will confront us, challenge us, and comfort us, if there's one passage that looks back at all of holy history, looks forward to what's going to come in the not yet, and if there's one passage in the most poetic and almost most panoramic of ways that inspires living hope and inspires faith-filled living all over the earth and, and inspires what we would call biblical faith. It is Hebrews chapter 11. Now this is a very famous passage. It's a well-preached text, but if you listen to it closely over the next few weeks, you will hear that emanating from this well-preached text, the Holy Spirit both whispers, comforts, and shouts to every generation of followers of Jesus, move forward, don't lose faith, and take heart. Now, as we're going to see today and also over the next few weeks, we're not just going to be called to be inspired. 
Inspiration is not enough for us to produce holy lives. Enough inspiration doesn't produce the willingness to suffer for the cause of Christ. Inspiration is never enough to say no to sin or give more money or time or, no, no. See, we don't just need inspiration, which we find in Hebrews 11. We also are given in this passage a promise of empowerment and also a promise of heavenly reward. See, that's what I want everyone to catch right at the beginning of this series. Empowerment reward, and inspiration bind together to give us the ability to move forward in biblical faith. If you've grown up in church, you've probably memorized this verse or heard it since you were young. If you haven't, let me read it to you for the first time. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, we just spent a whole series around Easter called Smoke and Mirrors, asking the question, can a rational person believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Can a rational person actually have faith? And remember what we found out. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is not crossing your fingers, hoping this is true, but not being sure. Faith is informed trust. It is fact, and it is encounter. It is true capital. Knowledge. But see, if you've done church for a while, you've heard all sorts of people talk about faith in all sorts of ways. See, when you hear the word faith, the question I need to ask this morning as we get going is, what do you think about when you hear the word faith? Is it faith in faith? If I have enough faith, I will be healed. If I have enough faith, I will be rich and God will make my life clean, pure, and happy. When you heard the word faith, is it you have faith or trust in God's love or his holiness or his kindness? Maybe when you hear the word faith, you think about right thinking. I have right faith equals I have right doctrine. Well, when the author of Hebrews, and actually when all the leaders in our movement wrote the Holy Scriptures and wrote the word faith, what did they mean? I love this definition I found this week. Faith means a certainty about God himself, a knowing of who God is, and what God has promised, and I would add, and what he has not promised, and acting upon his word. It is living your life out according to the God of Scripture and what He's commanded. It's not just concrete doctrinal knowing of who God is. It is also having your life formed by knowing God is real, knowing His Word is real, and knowing that God does not lie. Now the Bible says here, and this is the foundation of our faith, we, it says that we have confidence. That is, we are sure our faith has substance and firmness. The word in Greek literally reads, it, we have a collection of documents proving something. We have established ownership. We have a guarantee. We have a proof which produces a real, living, vital certainty. And our faith, it says, and our assurance is a God in a God who is unseen and his work throughout history and reliance on his word. It is an assurance of those things that are fully coming in the not yet, which we have partially as Christians experienced in the now. He says, this is what faith is. And then very quickly he says this, and this is what the ancients were commended for. Our spiritual grandparents and great-grandparents found in the scriptures, God honored them for this thing. 
And then he said this, look, we all know this. He said, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, God's word, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By informed trust, by science, by fact, and by faith, we know that God called forth creation from nothing to something. This is not the debate about evolution. That's not even the conversation here. Here is the point. We call this ex nihilo. God, who was before all things when there was nothing, called forth something, and that something is creation. That idea is uniquely Jewish and was held by the Jews and, of course, by us because we are their grandchildren. And the verse is invoked here to summarize the first two chapters of Genesis, which is the foundation and the fountainhead for our whole faith. Actually, it's where we get the beginning part of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. That is, by faith, we know, by informed trust, we know and we believe in and we walk with God, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-sovereign, but he is not just the author of creation, he's the sustainer of creation. One of the most famous verses in the Bible is found in this chapter, a few verses later, where it says this in chapter, uh, verse 6, and without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We as Christians at the core of our faith believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of all things, the creator of heaven and earth. And I just want to break this down this morning for all of us. We believe that creation in its totality, color and beauty, all we sense and all we see and all we experience is not some cosmic mistake. We are not just stardust with no purpose. We are not just a bang without purpose. We are not some experiment of another alien race. No, God God the great artist, God the great father of lights, God the lover of our souls, he has created the heavens and the earth. Capital R reality is physical and capital R reality is spiritual and they together blend to make up existence, natural and supernatural, from angels to stars, from whales to trees, from the sea to the sky, to the billions of stars, God created the heavens and the earth. Anyone want to say amen to that? This is the truth of God. It's interesting that if you read the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews starts the whole conversation. The very first verse in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 is a summary of this whole series. He said, you know, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, and ready, and through whom he also made the universe. See, now we get the full picture of the source and also the point of our faith. We are invoking faith in God and creation, but we always are reminded that Jesus Christ is always at the center. You're saying, hold on. You're saying that Jesus existed before the manger? Oh, yes, I am. You're saying that Jesus was at creation? Absolutely. Jesus is the one that the Father used to create everything. 
Paul writes it like this in Colossians 1.15. The Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For by Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Jesus, and all things were created for Jesus. When you read Colossians, don't misunderstand it. When you see the phrase firstborn, it's not saying Jesus is the first created being. It's an Old Testament phrase out of Psalm 89, meaning sovereign one. In other words, Jesus is the creator God, and through him everything we see and don't see was made for Jesus, by Jesus, and they're underneath Jesus' feet. Jesus is not part of creation. He is the author of creation. It says in verse 17 in Colossians, Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. I love this verse, and the author of Hebrews is also saying this. Why? Because God is not just like a watchmaker who wound up the clock and set out a group of scientific rules and then walked away and doesn't care about his creation. He is involved now. Jesus is the rationale, the rhythm, the reason. He's the system of all systems. He's not just like Star Wars, some unknown force that keeps things together. He's a personal God that keeps everything going at this moment. We, by faith as Christians, are certain, and we have great assurance, and we know that there is not just a God, but there is a God who is the author of, of creation itself, and by in faith that is informed trust, we know that Jesus, his Son, the second person of the Trinity, reveals the whole story from creation to salvation to redemption to the end of time. And we're not the only ones who know this. We who are gathering here this morning, you in the north, and all the services that will gather next, we're only a small group of hundreds of millions, actually billions, that have walked down and will walk down these very well-worn paths of faith. Now, we need context as we get going in this series. The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of predominantly Jewish people who have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And they also are now suffering for being Christians. They are being formally attacked and persecuted. And the author of Hebrews knows that they and every generation of Christians will need help to continue not to lose heart, to be faithful, to keep us going, to inspire us, but also knows that he will have to clarify what faith looks like on the ground in everyday life. And so, so this is what he chooses to do. He invokes all the great men and women found in the Old Testament. And he does this in a long list like a hall of fame to remind us how faith in God and trusting in his promises produces a biblical amazing life. We, over the next month or two, are going to be swept across thousands of years. And he's going to say to us, I want you to look at Abel. And Enoch, and Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and Rahab, and Gideon, and Barak, and Samson, David, and Samuel. I want you to look at the prophets. I even want you to look at Christians who have been murdered for their faith. But not only all of them. I want you to look upon the one who surpasses them all. Look upon Jesus Christ. I want you to look at Jesus and all these other people. Because here is what bound them together across thousands of years and different experiences and different genders and even ethnicities. Not one of them in the end lost heart. 
Their lives were marked with the most important quality of a follower of Jesus Christ. Faithfulness to an unseen God who they loved deeply and they had been loved back. Let me say that again. The most important mark of a Christian, every generation of Christians is called to this. Faithfulness to an unseen God who they love and has loved them back. Now, with great intention, we're going to discover this. The author of Hebrews walks us almost chronologically from the beginning of time all the way and ending with Jesus so we will be swept into the grand redemptive purposes of God that we can be reminded and inspired that God is sovereignly involved and has been moving the whole world towards Jesus who is the pioneer, the perfecter, the author, and the guarantor of our faith. And yet, this is critical as I get going. As we journey through a series on faith, let us not forget a few critical things. Number one, these so-called giants of our faith were ordinary, very sinful, very broken people. Noah got drunk out of his mind and did sexual stuff that if you read it will make your hair stand on end. Isaac lied. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses murdered someone and had big anger problems. Gideon doubted and tested God. David was involved in murder and committing adultery. The people of Israel continually loved God and then kissed the mouth of other idols. This is just a few of the black marks that are found in the hall of faith. And it's very important we remember this because so many Christians give up before they begin because they say, I could never be that. Well, if you've done any of that plus, you're already in. So congratulations. Also, we need to be reminded every single week that what is the result? The question we need to ask, what is the result of having faith? What would my life look like if I did not lose heart? What was the outcome of people that truly knew God and walked with God and had faith? Here's the question. Was everything amazing? Did they all get rich and did they never have to wear glasses and they were always physically healed because they had enough faith? Did they all walk with God so close that the world didn't even touch them? They had super amazing spiritual lives and they could just shake it off? No. As we walk through this series, this is so critical. As we talk about taking heart, as we talk about living hope, let us remember that faithfulness to God, which is the real sign of biblical faith, will have positive and negative effects in this life. Oh yes, there are all sorts of amazing high points that take place, amazing moments. The people of God brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, walking through the Red Sea, Jericho's walls fell, Enoch was ushered into the very presence of God and didn't even die. Enemies overcome, the Psalms were written, widows had their children brought back from the dead. But many other people we're going to be inspired by did not see the results in this life for their faithfulness. So many people say, well, if you love God and have lots of faith, everything's going to be okay. And I go, have you read the story of Abel? He still gets killed by Cain. That's the result of his faithfulness. Abraham had to wait for a lifetime to see his son. Moses didn't get to enter the promised land. And as we'll see at the end of Hebrews 11, many faithful, God-loving people are tortured, killed, and put in prison and lost everything because they had biblical faith. Here's what we will learn in this series. The results in this lifetime of faith-filled living are mixed. 
And here is the critical thing. Many people who were faithful to God in their life had nothing left but the God they knew and the promises they were given. And even when they did not see the full results, they also did not lose heart. And that is why they end up in this grand chapter. Now, the other thing we need to get as we get going is this. The author of Hebrews does something uh, quite amazing. He bookends the conversation Number one, he starts with God and creation and faith. And then he lists all these amazing people, which is going to be the heart of our series. And then in chapter 12, what he does is he bookends the conversation with Jesus. And so we start with God the Father and creation and faith, and we end with Jesus, and we're inspired in the middle. But we're going to go to the end so we can move back through during the series. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Hebrews 12 just for a moment. Hebrews 12, 1 reads like this. Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. He says, listen, church, do you understand this in this moment? Do you fully understand this right now? Do you know, have you ever, if you've been a Christian for days, months, or years, lived like this, that you at this moment, not metaphorically, literally are surrounded, that is, there is a great encampment, that is, there is a great host wrapping around you. It is a great cloud of witnesses, the hundreds of millions and billions of known and unknown people who have found Jesus, who have now passed into eternity. The image being invoked here is from a grand arena, uh, watching a major sporting event, and in the stands are those who loved God and walked with God in their life, and now have passed into eternity. And yet I love this, and many Protestants never think about this. Death is so defeated by Jesus. Death is so defeated by Jesus that though we cannot see them, we are still only one people and one church found in Jesus. The election of God the Father and the work of Jesus Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit transcends death itself. Think about that. Any relative or any friend that knew Jesus who has now passed away is now part of that great cloud of witnesses. And all those hundreds of millions we have never met are now part of that great cloud of witnesses. And everyone found who was faithful in the scriptures, Moses and Samuel and David and Gideon are found there. Adam and Eve, they're there. They make up the great cloud of witnesses. And this is the one who is watching and with us. It was Richard Baxter, the great Puritan pastor of the 16th century who was struggling with his faith and was writing a hymn and was inspired by Hebrews 11 and 12. It's old language, but let me read it to you. He said, within the fellowship of the saints is wisdom, a safety, and delight. And when my heart declines in faith, when I'm struggling with my faith, it's raised by who? Their heat and light, the great cloud of witnesses. We, are all, we still are all centered in thee, members though distant of one head. Within one family we be, and by one faith and spirit we be led. Before thy throne we daily meet as joint petitioners to thee. In spirit each the other greet, and shall again each other see. Isn't that awesome? He says that is this. Now here's the question. What is the great cloud of witnesses doing? Are they looking at us right now? Are they cheering us on? Possibly the roar of heaven that ascends to the throne is maybe spilling over every generation of Christians found on earth. 
Blue Jay season just started again, did it not, for many of you? Very intense, some of you. And last year, when everyone was a fan, when we were doing well, right? Do you remember what happened in those last few games? Every bar was filled, right? Every state, like people were hoarse. They were giving their lives and everything, screaming. They're in Vancouver, screaming at the television, thinking this is going to be, like, is that the image? Is literally my great-grandmother who loved Jesus screaming, John, keep going, keep going, keep going. It's, it's worth it. Jesus is so much better than you realize. Is this what's taking place? That the whole earth is actually being flooded by the cheers of those who have gone before us saying, look and continue to be faithful. Well, maybe it preaches well, but I think the text even goes in a different direction. Though we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses who are going to spend weeks going through, I think the real heart of the author is this. Not that they are looking at us, but we, as F.F. Bruce said, are looking at them. And we are to be inspired by them and take faithfulness from them. But his real phrase that brought it home for me was this. Let us begin to cultivate lives that look like them. They become the living, as the old English says, Ebenezer's. They become the old remembrance stones that we go to to remember that God is good and faithful and we need to cultivate lives like them. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and every sin that so easily entangles and let us run the race with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Since we have faith, Since we have confidence and assurance, since we now know by faith that an unseen God has broken into our world through the prophets and by the Spirit and fully through his Son, Jesus, and since we are now in him, and since we now know that not just our relatives or friends or those we've never met make up this great cloud of witnesses, but since we know all those who are faithful to Yahweh found now through Jesus the Messiah, through the Holy Spirit, are found in that great cloud, let us begin to throw away and throw off everything that is hindering us while we're in the arena and while it's our time to run in the sporting event. The image here is of a marathon runner, and the person is saying, the person is running, but they're in trouble because they're overweight and or they're wearing the wrong clothing. And so it's imagine you're doing a marathon downtown Toronto, you're running one or five or 10 or 20 kilometers. And instead of going to the running room, you go to Banana Republic and bulk up on some sweaters. Like you would never do this. Or imagine that you say, well, I'm just going to go right now and I'm going to run a 12 kilometer marathon, but I have never run in my life. And I look at me, here we go. You'd go, no, no, you've got to train and prepare. And here's the image. He's saying, look, since God has been faithful to us, and since Jesus has been faithful to us, and since we have a great cloud of witnesses that have shown us what faithfulness looks like, here's the one thing we all need to agree to do. Let us get rid of everything that would hold us down from living the holy lives and the faithful lives God is calling us to. He's really saying, are you willing, O North American middle-class Christian, are you willing to suffer and say no to what you want or desire or you believe in because God has asked you to give it up to do a greater thing? Years ago, I was struggling In my walk, I was having a bad season. We've all had those. And I kept doing the same stupid sin. Ever been there before? 
Liars. And, uh, <laughs> right? And you do it again and again. You almost don't want to talk to God anymore because you feel so ashamed. Thank God Jesus has covered it all. But we come again and again. And I was reading, uh, this was years ago when I was a young adult, and I was reading the book of Hebrews devotionally. And as I was reading it, I suddenly stumbled on Hebrews 12, 4 and forward. And I was just shocked by it. Because he says, you want to run the race that God has set out before you? He says this in verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What? I said, i got to read this again. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Is this talking about self-injury or suicide? No. He is saying that people have died for the holy faith in Jesus Christ and not renounced him. And you have not had to do that. And yet you are saying that you truly cannot say no to a particular struggle in your life. In other words, you're not really willing to sacrifice what you love, but you know is wrong because of what? He keeps going and says, have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement addresses you, addresses you as a father, addresses his son or daughter? This is so un-Canadian, so biblical. It says, my son, my daughter, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart. There's the phrase. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastises everyone he accepts as a son or daughter. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what child are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not even legitimate. You're not one of his true sons or daughters at all. More, however, we who have had human fathers who discipline us and we respect them for it, that's a general statement. We, of course, know there's bad experiences, but as a general statement, we respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the fathers of spirits and live? They discipline us for a little while as though it was best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, amen to that, but painful, but later on it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. He says, when I want you to take heart and be faithful and be inspired and follow Jesus, he says, look, since we are surrounded by this great cloud, let us begin to run the race marked out that we did not choose, but God chose for us. Let us begin to throw off every single thing that is hindering us from running the race. And he even says this, God will even step in at points and discipline us so we will actually become like his son and become holy. So he says, don't lose heart even when if God steps in and disciplines you for a bit, because that is actually the sign that you are a legitimate son or daughter. You will rarely hear this be preached in North America. He says, so look, if we're not going to lose heart, and if we're going to continue to be filled with biblical faith and see the amazing things God has promised and actually imitate those who have gone behind us, he says, okay, I want you to look back and be inspired by all of those who have run the race already. And I want you to look forward because you know that you know that Jesus will vindicate you and you will be rewarded. But as you look back and as you look forward, as you're living in the middle, look up. Why? He says, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus, 
the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. This is so critical. Jesus is the pioneer of our faith. Have you thought about that? Jesus went where no other person had ever gone before. He obeyed the Father perfectly when we couldn't. He looked the devil right in the face and took him on. He bore the sins of the world. He dove headlong into the darkness of death and he overcame all of it. He went where the first Adam was supposed to go and did not go. Jesus is our champion. Jesus is our leader. Jesus is our forerunner. Jesus is our initiator. Jesus is the one who holds us. He blazed the trail of faith. He went where we could not go and he did it because he loves us. He is the perfecter and the author, the guarantor of our faith. He saves us. He secures us. He's standing in the gap for us right now. Jesus is our high priest at this moment. He's holding us. And when we face God on judgment day, he's going to look at his father and say, oh, that son or that daughter? No, they're mine. I've bought them. You gave them to me. And so your judgment passes over them. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's our Passover lamb. Our faith depends on Jesus from start to finish. What a good, what a kind friend we have in Jesus. But the reason why I've unpacked it this way is I want to show you something. Jesus is at creation. And Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, is now in the right hand of the Father, who is now ahead of us, preparing a way for us, is also the same one who was in the middle sovereignly working with all the great leaders that now make up the great cloud of witnesses. See, Jesus is God. Jesus was the one with Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and Samuel. Do you read your New Testament clearly and closely? You'll discover this. In the book of Jude, verse 5, it says, Though you already know this, I want to remind you that Jesus, notice that, Jesus at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Who was with Moses? Jesus was with Moses. Why? Because Jesus is part of the Trinity, Yahweh himself, one God. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, too, that Jesus was the rock that actually the people of Israel were drinking from. Here's the point, if it's getting a little convoluted. Week after week, in this series, let us be encouraged by the many who have gone behind us. Let us be inspired by those who have gone long before us. Let us also be inspired not just by those who we find in the great list of the scriptures, Let us in our connect groups over the next two months be inspired by each other who make up the cloud of witnesses down here. Let us also be inspired by people in other churches. Let us share the stories of those people in our lives who introduced us to Jesus and formed us in Jesus, family, friends, and strangers, whether living or dead. And let us also, during this, every single week, though we honor all those people and want to be inspired by those people, let us look up and gaze and stare and watch and set our eyes permanently on Jesus because he did it perfectly. Fix your eyes on Jesus, C4, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And then it says this, for the joy set before him Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, 
And now he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now this is critical for this whole series. Jesus had joy that was so real that it produced a life of faithfulness that allowed him to actually endure suffering. I mean, Dave talked about this on Good Friday. The cross was the worst form of capital punishment in its day. Only for slaves, only for criminals, and it was always about long-term torture and public humiliation. Stripped naked, literally drowning in your own flesh, and people mocking you. You're nothing, you're, you're not even human, you're garbage, you're ridiculed, you're broken. And that is where Jesus ended up. And the author of Hebrews says, and that's where he was supposed to end up. But then he says, but that is not where he stayed. Where did he go? Well, it says in Philippians 2, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place. Now he's been given the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You say, well, what's the point? Here it is. Jesus and his faithfulness and his suffering and his endurance was rewarded and honored by God. And the author of Hebrews is saying this to us today in verse 3. So you consider him, C4, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. He says, look at Jesus who took on the whole kingdom of darkness Look on Jesus who took all the sin from everyone that has ever existed. And he says, just you look upon him. Because as you look upon him, you will know that actually Jesus suffered in this life, but he was rewarded in the life to come. Some of you are saying, well, John, the cost is just too high. I mean, the pain is too much. I mean, yeah, I want to be inspired by Jesus. And and I'm going to look at all those great leaders like Moses and Rahab and I'm just an ordinary person, broken, doubting, half the time unsure. I'm stopped always before I start. I lose heart all the time, though I maybe wouldn't call it that way. I need more than just inspiration to say no to what I want. I need more than just inspiration to walk a holy life or be filled with joy or hope. To deny what I want, to be radically faithful. My world is full of inspiration. What do you have for me than just that. And it's interesting as we go through this because A, yes, we are inspired, but also the book of Hebrews promises ongoing encounter and empowerment in the middle. He says we have inspiration to look to, we have reward that is guaranteed, but in the middle we have encounter. That is why Hebrews 11 has to be read with Hebrews 4. He says, therefore, Since we, that if if you're a Christian, have a great high priest who's in heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we we profess. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every single way and yet did not sin. 
So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, here's what we're going to learn about biblical faithfulness. We have been given the examples to inspire us because we can be like them too. And like Jesus was rewarded, we will be rewarded if we are faithful. And also, at any time, we have direct access to God through Jesus and we can actually have a high priest who sympathizes with us and will empower us to be like him. This is not a call to pull up your bootstraps. This is the one who's actually saying, I'm going to give you my spirit to be like me. This is where biblical faith is worked out. The phrase, the joy set before us, the phrase that was given to Jesus, it's this. Jesus knew that the best was yet to come. He knew that the end would bring the better new beginnings. But see, like I preached in the first Peter series, this brings us to another fork in our road in our minds, in our church, in our culture. See, our culture does not believe in a coming end. We believe, like I quoted last time, in the myth of progress. Many of you as Christians live your life more like this than biblically. Just get the right people and the right technology and the right politicians and, and the right environmental standards and the right justice. And if we just get it all right, everything's going to be okay. Or atheistic evolution says, well, there just is no end. But the Christian worldview says, no, no, of course there is an end. And the end is actually where the greatest restorations will take place. Remember what we learned in the first Peter series, the end of all things is near. This is saying that we as Christians, if we want to be faith-filled and not lose trust and not lose heart and move forward and have joy in our life, we have to live like the end is the most important thing. The end holds our living hope. It's actually why we can suffer willingly if we are called to. We know there's vindication, and it is the motivation to obey God and say no to sin because we want to honor the one that has loved us. Take heart. Be faithful, whether you see the results in this life or not. Look back and be inspired by those who are marked by faithfulness, but fix your eyes on Jesus. And let me just preach this for a moment. Why should we keep fixing our eyes on Jesus as we go through the series? Well, let me tell you, because unlike Abel who presented a good sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. That's the difference. He's greater than Enoch because Enoch was ushered into the presence of God. Jesus is God himself. Have you thought about this? Jesus is greater than Noah because he is our permanent ark forever. He's greater than Abraham because he was always faithful and he is his son. He is the representation of Isaac and he's our scapegoat and Jesus is our promised land. He's greater than Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and he's greater than Moses because Jesus was the God that met him in the burning bush and he split the Red Sea for us and he took us all out of Egypt called death, the demonic, and sin. Jesus is better than Rahab and Gideon and Samuel. But here's the critical thing. He's not just our inspiration, the model, but his life demonstrates to us that we will be rewarded. Jesus suffered and Jesus had joy. And Jesus went through trials, but he was faithful. And because of that, he actually had something called faithfulness mark him. So let me ask you a question this morning. If we are called to take heart and not lose heart and move forward, let me ask you this question. What sin is clinging to you? What unnecessary worry is plaguing you? What is actually showing you down? Can I ask everyone to do this? Could everyone close their eyes for a moment? This is very important. This is a holy moment for us. 
All of you in the north, could you do this? If you're on a laptop or in a go train somewhere or you're listening to this in the car, don't close your eyes, but do this. I want to ask the Holy Spirit to give you the picture of how you're running. Very important. So are you limping? Are you running full stride? Are you walking? Have you literally stopped? Are you distracted? Squirrel, you know. Are you actually not running forward? You're actually running back to the life God saved you from. Are you walking in the opposite direction from Jesus? Holy Spirit, I would ask in Jesus' name that no spirit, unholy thing could be put in our mind, not our own hearts. Just what image do you give the church? Do you have it? Let me just say this. You can open your eyes. I want you to keep that image this whole series to see if it changes. I want to talk about fear for a moment. Do you really believe that God is one and he's going to win? Do you think that God wins no matter who's prime minister in Canada or in the United States of America, who no matter who's president, no matter if the economy is good or bad, no matter if all our religious freedom was removed tomorrow in Canada or we were misunderstood, what are you trusting in? This is critical as we get going. A person, a political system. Are you looking back at the good old days when church like, looked like this, not like that? Just stop. Is God in control and is he sovereign or is he not? Are you certain and do you have assurance? This is the promise of the series, by the way. God is always faithful and we can be faithful to him. And God will use any person of any age. This is, everyone listening? I'm 40 and I'm learning the older you get, it's easier to lose heart. Pain, job questions, loss of family or family drama sickness. You ask questions, am I still relevant? The world is changing so fast, technology, church style. Yet as we're going to discover over the next few months, most of the ancients that were called were called long after they were 40. And they became in their older ages faith-filled rebels. So here's what I want to challenge everyone to do in this series. Number one, I want us to be inspired and move forward. Number two, I want us to see if the image in our head changes as God refines us. But any person in the sound of my voice who's over 40, who has loved Jesus for a while, here's my challenge to you. I want you to begin to radically model what faith looks like for the rest of the people underneath you generationally and all the new Christians in this church. What does real faith look like? confident assurance that God is in control, not my RRSPs. Not my education, though important. No, it's deeper than that. Living a life that you know that you know that God wins. A person who says, you know what, I want to tell you that suffering is best and should not be avoided because sometimes suffering produces righteousness. Let you begin to demonstrate to everyone around you that saying no every single time to sin is the best decision you could make. Why living with the end in mind is how you live your life to inspire the younger generations underneath us. Why submitting to the Bible's authority, no matter the cost, in every area of life is best because you know that the Jesus that you've met will reward you in the end and you want his reward more than your satisfaction in this life right now. I want all of you who are older to demonstrate there is no retirement 
and no golf course mentality in our movement. Dave, you can still golf, but you know what I'm saying. It is the heart where you say, you know what? I know that I know that I know that this is so true that I'm going to start demonstrating throwing off fear and throwing off sin so not only I'm running towards Jesus, but people under, underneath me are inspired to keep going in their faith. The scriptures come and says, take heart. For there's a great cloud of witnesses. Take heart because Jesus is with us. Take heart because our great high priest is with us. It says, take heart for the joy set before you. The scripture says, God will reward you for your faithfulness if you obey. And it says, throw off everything that is against the race set out. But lastly, let me just say this. In 1 Peter, it said this. And I found it amazing as I was just preparing this, that the very first few verses in 1 Peter, which was our main series for this year, summarized that series, this whole series, and also smoke and mirrors. And I want to read it over you as you begin to reflect on this. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, into an inheritance that can never spoil or perish or fade. This inheritance is kept for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These come so you can actually have your faith proven as genuine, a greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, which will result in the praise and glory and honor of Jesus when he's revealed. And though you've never seen Jesus, oh, how you love him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him and you're filled with inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Anyone want to say amen to that? Would you stand as, let's just pray together all across our sites. Father, as we begin this journey into biblical faith, I pray again, just for a few things, I pray for no one to lose heart, but actually to move forward in a deeper, genuine faith. I ask in Jesus' name right now that you would begin to give us the images we need in our mind to see where we're supposed to go. I pray also, Lord, that you'd begin to inspire people among us who are older in the faith to start demonstrating what this looks like. And Lord, thank you that you've got our salvation, that you've given us witness, you promise us reward. And now my prayer simply is this, Lord, now pour out your Holy Spirit and empower us so we can actually have heart to take heart and live radical countercultural lives in this church. And all of God's people said together, amen. What a day to take communion, wouldn't you agree? So a very simple thing, if you're a Christian and love Christ, you truly confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, you believe in the historicity of our movement, and you know he's alive, then you're just welcome. It's come forward communion today. And the scriptures say, if you're not a Christian, please don't take this yet, because you've not met Jesus It says that if you're a Christian who's struggling, you're welcome. Doing well, you're welcome. If you're running and rebelling, though, it says don't take it until you work out things with God. It also says in the scripture, do you have anything against a fellow Christian? Maybe if you can, should try to resolve that before you take it. But as you come forward today, just very simply, would you just say, Jesus, help me to take heart. Jesus, help me to be inspired. Help me, Lord Jesus, to be like you who's been faithful to us. So let's respond in song and communion. Lord, meet us at these tables, we pray. The the symbols of your death and resurrection and the symbols of our hope in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.